Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, August 8th. New research has identified genetic defects that lead to heart failure, and that's opening the door to more targeted diagnoses, prevention, and treatment. We get all the details from cardiologist Dr. Gavin Udit, Canada Research Chair in Heart Failure. It's also Motivational Monday, so we get a double dose of help from the CEO and founder of Fairway Divorce Solutions, Karen Stewart. She says thousands of Canadians struggle after making the heartbreaking decision to end their marriage but believes divorce doesn't have to be a bad thing. The International Atomic Energy Agency says Ukraine's main nuclear plant is out of control. We'll get details on that and the latest news on the Ukraine war from Marcus Kolga, founder of disinfowatch.org. And independent living, assisted living and dementia care, they have it all at the new Trico Living Well Seniors Community in South Calgary. I had the chance to check it out. Heart failure is a condition that affects 23 million people worldwide. Now, some new research may have unlocked the key to more targeted diagnoses, prevention, and treatment. With details, we're joined this morning by Gavin Udit, cardiologist in the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry and Canada Research Chair in Heart Failure. Good morning to you, doctor. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Sue. Thanks for having me. Wow, 23 million people worldwide. I mean, what do we know about heart failure? Is it a genetic thing? Yes, absolutely. So I think a major driver of heart failure in some patients is cardiomyopathies, which is a problem with the heart muscle. So typically genetic defects that leads to malfunctioning of the heart muscle tissues that ultimately leads to arrhythmias and and heart failure. So this is an important um, burden for patients with heart failure. I think, uh, yeah, I'll I'll stop there. Okay, but then let's get into the research about it too. And doctor, tell us a little bit about, you know, how this new research might ultimately be used to save lives. Right, absolutely. So in in this study, we actually looked at six to one uh, explanted failing hearts from patients going for heart transplant and 18 healthy donor hearts. And we were able to compare all the different cell types um, in the hearts across different types of cardiomyopathies. And what we were able to show is that these hearts actually remodeled in very different way at a molecular and cellular level. So uh, this work really lays the groundwork for individualized uh, molecular basis interventions for patients with cardiomyopathy and heart failure. So it's really a, a truly remarkable international collaboration that we're able to pull this off. And we now have a very precise uh, molecular signature and cellular signature of what's uh, happening in, in patients with, um, with cardiomyopathies and heart failure. So, I mean, probably extremely simplistic, but you mm-hmm. need to know what's going wrong in order to figure out how to make right. it go right, correct? Uh, absolutely. And so what we realize is that the different types of genetic defects leads to different types of um, changes. And so what that, um, that really um, asks the question of whether we should be targeting specific therapies for these different types of cardiomyopathies. And that's indeed what the evidence shows, and that's actually our next step. In fact, we're already making progress at this, both in the academic re- uh, university setting, but also in industry. We're now looking at specific um, drugs, um, genetic, um, uh, genetic therapies, but also pharmacological therapies, um, targeting these different types of cardiomyopathies in, in patients um, with, with heart failure. 
So what we're looking at um, probably in the next decade or two is actually specific therapies that can now correct these molecular defects in patients with um, with cardiomyopathy. Before something bad happens? Absolutely, and that's wow. also a big part of the story, screening family members, because these, uh, these changes are in our genes, so they are transmittable, typically in an autosomal dominant manner. So 50% of family members are affected. And so you can see the burden of illness is actually quite, quite tremendous if you start looking at the entire um, family affected by this. So I think that's also important, screening family members for cardiomyopathies, which is something we're actually actively doing in our clinics. And then, of course, intervening on on these uh, patients at a very early stage in the disease before they have, um, before they develop bad arrhythmias and heart failure. Is this a particularly uh, Canadian discovery? And how do we rate when it comes to sort of, you know, research being done around the world? Well, you know, in, in, in true Canadian modesty, we're, we're, doing pretty, we're doing pretty good. I mean, I think our work here at the Mazinkowski Alberta Heart Institute has been seminal because of the biobank we have created over the last 14 years of every patient going for a heart transplant. We're able to collect tissues from those explanted hearts, and it's that tissue that we're able to study in very great detail given the explosion in, in, in um, biotechnology, we're able to sort this out at a very molecular and cellular level. So this is really a true example of altruism and um, patient engagement and you know having our patients being part of our research. And I think pretty much everyone is very excited to be mm-hmm. part of the research. And it's great to see this sort of altruism lead to this kind of scientific um, breakthrough. Doctor, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people walking around out there who have no mm-hmm. idea they've got a, a genetic heart condition. So are there signs, symptoms, anything that we can look for, or do we just sort of wait till something happens? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a, good, it's a good, great question. And so I think obviously if you have a family member with a cardiomyopathy or with early onset heart failure, you should be talking to your family doctor and also talk to your family member that's affected. They're willing to sometimes uh, often disclose their genetic reports and that can be used in a very focused manner to screen the entire family. Um, So I think that's a big part of it, just being aware of the the, um, condition, having genetic screening and um, early screening and early intervention. And of course, watching out for things like heart failure um, and arrhythmias. So, you know, blackout spells, shortness of breath, swelling in the legs, not feeling yourself or not doing as much as you used to. But um, any any signs or symptoms of early um, bad arrhythmias or, or heart failure would be would be something that's very worrisome and should make you think of uh, a cardiomyopathy. So, we now have. Um, genetic screening clinics, both in Edmonton and in Calgary, and across Canada is now an international approach, pretty much standard of care. So there's no reason why you should not um, be getting a genetic testing for cardiomyopathy if there's any any evidence of uh, suspicion of this. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate you chatting with us. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. That is Gavin Udet, cardiologist in the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry and Canada Research Chair in Heart Failure.
Divorce can certainly leave behind a trail of financial and emotional hardship, often stopping people from being able to move forward in their lives. Author, CEO and founder of Fairway Divorce Solutions, Karen Stewart, is doing a double book launch to help others create a great life after divorce. And she joins us now. Hi, Karen. Thanks for being on the show this morning. Oh, hi. Good morning. Um, so unusual, but brilliant. You've got a double book launch. We've got a divorce for women, a guide to creating a great life after divorce and divorce for men. So why come up with two separate books? Is it that different for the different sexes? Well, I think there's a couple things. Uh, firstly, there's a lot of books out for women targeted to women. And so I thought, you know, I think one of the things about Fairway is our, our job is to be neutral. That's what we are, is essentially, you know, divorce mediators, and we have to remain neutral. And I thought, well, it's probably best to put out one for each um, for each different gender. And so they both feel like there's somebody who's speaking to them with mm-hmm. them. So can you kind of break it down then, uh, you know, generalize on both counts, but is it a sort of a, a roadmap once you're finished with divorce, or is it getting you through the whole process? Well, it's a little bit of both, but mostly, I mean, my previous books have been more about how to get through divorce and how to avoid some of the, the pitfalls in the traditional system. But these two books are really designed after, after you know, being in Canada for 16 years in business and over 5,200 couples across Canada that we've resolved. I noticed a bit of a pattern, and that is people get to the end of the divorce and they're sitting there like, what now? Like, what next? And they, they, they're moving forward with some fear, anxiety. They're not exactly sure where to turn. And so I found that there was a, uh, a generality there is the, around questions and around concerns. And over the years, I've been making notes and capturing that. And so it is a bit of a roadmap. It's a bit of a, um, I wouldn't call it step-by-step because nothing's quite step-by-step after you divorce, mm-hmm. but, but uh, a bit of a roadmap, some of the things to avoid, some of the things to, uh, you know, look out for and to have fun with. Um, it's certainly a little more lighthearted, I hope, than, than my first two books. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I'm excited about it, and I, and I just, you know, I hope that it helps a few people. Lighthearted and fun, that seems kind of contrary to, you know, the topic we're discussing. Well, I think the thing is, when you're done a divorce, you're exhausted. It, you know, it's probably gone on for years, uh, if you know, if not longer. And even if you're going through in a positive way, it, it's still very stressful. And so it is nice to know there's hope and there's some light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, I certainly am... am very honest in these books about some of the things to avoid and to watch out for because we tend to get to the end of the divorce and some people either want to climb and you know go into a cave and other people Mm -hmm. are ready to sort of bounce back into things and both can be a little bit of a recipe for for not achieving your your best outcome so hopefully it's a bit of a balance uh, a balance as well whether you're male or female coming out of it you have a line saying getting divorced is not a bad thing what do you mean by that well, I think that's what, personally, this is my, my belief, and, and I feel really strongly about this, is sometimes we label things, and we have a connotation in society, and I think we're getting better, but when you label something bad, it immediately makes, it, it just puts this shadow of negativity and uh, around it. And when we're talking about divorce, it's really important. It's difficult, for sure. And nobody wants to go for the, through it, for sure. But in most cases, uh, children are involved. And we really have to be careful not to put a label of 
bad around something that involves our children because that's our legacy. And if we can move through divorce in a better way, and that's really what I've been working to do in the last 16 years in Canada, then we really what we're doing is we're protecting our children and their children and their children and the legacy around. And quite frankly, if we move through divorce in a good way, our children have a better chance of picking a good uh, a, a mate that they hopefully will not get divorced with. So mm-hmm. I really don't like the labeling of divorce and I've tried to, again, it's, it's a, divorce is not a light topic, no matter, no matter what, but life after divorce can be lighter. I guess that's probably a little more fun for me to write as well. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. You know, <laughs> you know, that on the, the point of kids too, I, I agree with you. I think that's really the the key that you need to be watching out for do you have any sort of tips for both men or women when it comes to children as you make your way into through and beyond a divorce well i i think you know and this sounds so cliche but it is so true is that we've got to put the children first and and what does that actually mean it means putting our our emotions the emotions that go around divorce sort of the you know the millions of emotions, if there are millions, but you know, the anger, resentment, scared, fear, distrust, um, uh, uncertainty, all these emotions, um, the children feel them um, because we're human and because of that we feel the energy of the people around us, especially if they're going through a difficult time. It's really important to try and protect that. It's really important to uh, do things like never, ever, and nobody's perfect, you know, certainly historically I've, I've made this mistake of saying anything bad about the other parent. And, uh, you know, that's kind of rule number one. Rule number two is, uh, you know, be honest and upfront with them, but don't tell them anything that's not age appropriate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, protecting their integrity. And, and here's, the, here's the good news. If you can move through divorce and you choose to move through divorce in a good way, you're really laying the foundations for actually building the self-confidence of your children because they will move forward, hopefully with two healthy uh, households, and they get to sort of design their own future roadmap based on what they get to see and if we can approach it that way it's better for us it's better for the adults it's better for the parents and certainly as you move into blended families I touch a bit on that in the in my book and that's probably going to if I write another one it will probably be about blended families because that's a tricky subject but kids have to come first you have to make sure that you're looking out for their well-being and if you do that then whatever you choose to do, whether it's new relationships, new careers, whatever it is, everybody tends to thrive. You know, and I feel like when you say that too, it, it makes a lot of sense that you're teaching kids through the entire process. You're, you're teaching them when you're in an unhappy marriage and then you're teaching them that it's okay sometimes once you've done everything you possibly can to move forward and out of that relationship. <laughs> and hopefully that is teaching them you know, that'll give them their own strength, their own power, and to know what they can and should live through as well. That's so true. And just remember that they're the, you know, they're the audience and we're the stage. Like, you know, the adults that go into a divorce are the stage. They're the actors. And if you look at yourself as the actors and the, these little children, and, and honestly, uh, it doesn't matter how young they are. They start to witness. If they don't understand, they process different in different ways. And I certainly have had the opportunity to work with a lot of adult children. I'm not a psychologist at all, but just hearing their stories and asking questions and observing, um, boy, it, it is a massive difference uh, when you measure the well-being of children emotionally and psychologically and building self-confidence with parents who really can 
uh, move through divorce in the best way possible. And the great news is if you do that, you're so much further ahead when you talk about your life after divorce. And that's, that's really what it is. If we can focus on getting through this in an efficient way, we can then, uh, you know, have a roadmap and hopefully my books will give people a few little tricks that, you know, do, and I do have a few do not do this, do, do, do this, but, but essentially it's just a bit of a, um, a reflection and an opportunity to ask yourself some questions because you don't want to go out and attract the same thing all over again. And that's sometimes what we do. Very much so. Patterns, right? Well, thank you. I feel like this discussion has probably helped a lot of people, you know, look at it a little bit differently. Yes, it, it can be a, a difficult time, but it doesn't have to be horrible once mm-hmm. you get through it, right? There, There's light at the end exactly. of the tunnel for sure. Thank that's- you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks. Karen Stewart is CEO and founder of Fairway Divorce Solutions, offices in Calgary and Edmonton. Two books, Divorce for Women, Divorce for Men, both of them, A Guide to Creating a Great Life After Divorce. You get more info at fairwaydivorce.com. One of Ukraine's nuclear power plants is out of control, according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, with some insight on the latest news on the war in Ukraine. We're joined this morning by Marcus Kolga, founder of DisinfoWatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonnell Laurier Institute's Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Good morning, Marcus. Thanks for being with me. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so this one particular nuclear plant being called out of control, it's rather terrifying sounding. So in this case, what does out of control mean exactly? Well, look, it's it's, uh, quite a scary situation right now. This is uh, Europe's largest nuclear power plant. It's in the south of of, uh, Ukraine, the the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. uh, It sits pretty much on the uh, front lines of Russia's invasion with Ukraine right now. Uh, Earlier on in February, at the start of the war, this is a power plant that maybe some of your listeners will recall. There was Russian forces were shooting at a nuclear power plant. This was that nuclear Mm -hmm. power plant. Uh, They have since taken that over. Uh, it's, It's exchanged hands a few times. Uh, and now it seems like uh, the the Russian forces that have been controlling it have allowed things to get completely out of control within the power plant. Uh, safety has it has all but uh, disappeared. All safety measures and such. And there have now been reports that Russian forces are actually firing at the plant, have been firing at the plant missiles and such and artillery over the past few days. And uh, the latest reports are that. Uh, a number of, of radiation sensors within the nuclear plant have been damaged. Uh, workers have been injured. Uh, and it doesn't seem like uh, Russia is listening to the warnings of the UN or the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency and is continuing to uh, you know, basically threaten uh, a, a possible nuclear meltdown at the plant. So it's it's quite a dire situation at the moment. Yeah, that is out of control, isn't it? I feel like it would it would take sort of, um, you know, a qualified team to be running a nuclear power plant. So if that's not the case, is Russia using this as a scare tactic, do you think? Because, I mean, a nuclear disaster cannot benefit anyone. Well, look, uh, you know, to answer your, the first part of your question, yeah, there's, I mean, there are uh, Ukrainian nuclear technicians who are still running the plant. They are effectively hostages and prisoners within the plant. Um, they are working under very extremely stressful conditions, you know, the fact that there's shelling happening all around them. Um, they just don't have the tools. Um, and a lot of the equipment is broken down. 
uh, at another nuclear power plant, Chernobyl, which you know everyone uh, probably uh, is familiar with. Uh, it was a plant that melted down in the in the 1980s. Um, that was also uh, uh, occupied by Russian forces, and when it was repatriated by Ukrainian forces, it seemed that uh, all of the computers, uh, all the technology, had basically been removed from the plant, and so. Um, you know, there's uh, there are Ukrainians who are keeping an eye on the plant, but uh, but there's there's great risk. Now, the second part of your question as to whether Russia is using this as part of their, you know, it seems like a growing appetite for uh, various types of blackmail tactics. You know, we saw them try to hold grain hostage, 20 million tons of it over the past few months, uh, holding it hostage to try and extract concessions from the West. Um, they're doing the same with energy, with gas to Europe. Um, Canada got caught up in that uh, nuclear, in, in that energy blackmail uh, just a few weeks ago. We were uh, forced to, uh, well, we were forced to, we, we, we gave in to Russia's blackmail, unfortunately, and returned a, a turbine that was important. Uh, they, the Russians claim it was important to pump gas to, to Europe. And now it seems like, um, you know, Vladimir Putin is engaging in nuclear blackmail. Um, you know, I think that a lot of experts would agree. Uh, I think a lot of European leaders would agree that uh, Russia is engaging in this sort of firing, uh, the, the potential destabilizing of a major uh, nuclear plant in order to uh, try and extract concessions either from the Ukrainians or the Europeans. And we need to be very much aware of that. And the Western world needs to be calling Vladimir Putin out for this because, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the situation is extremely dire. There are Russian officials who have taken to Russian state media over the past 24 hours. In fact, the, the head of Russia's radi uh, radiation and biological warfare unit, Valery Vasilyev, made a statement on Russian state media that either Russia will take the land or there will be a scorched desert at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So um, Russia is right now uh, playing chicken with the West. It is threatening nuclear uh, destruction and, and sabotage in Ukraine and uh, you know we need to be alert and and call them out on this uh, this very dangerous dangerous tactic. And Marcus, I mean really the UN has been avoiding going into this battle at all costs partly because they feared, you know, any kind of nuclear weaponry being used, but if this is the case and a nuclear meltdown seems inevitable, that could that backfire then and be enough for the UN to go in? Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure anymore. I mean, the 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 mounting uh, civilian death toll in Ukraine, the war crimes committed by uh, the Russian forces, uh, you know, systematic rape, torture, the targeting of civilian uh, infrastructure, apartment buildings, homes, hospitals, schools. You would have thought that that would have been enough for the UN to step in and say, stop, this is enough is enough. Um, you know, maybe uh, a nuclear <clears throat> catastrophe is will be enough for the UN to step in. Uh, Antonio Guterres has made statements about this over the past 48 hours, um, you know, calling out the Russians. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that that will amount to action, to be quite frank, because let's not forget the, the Security Council of the United Nations is, uh, is, is, has Russia as a member of it, and it is veto-based. If Russia vetoes any sort of decision, that's it. So I wouldn't uh, place too much hope on, on the UN on this. Um, I would look to the West. I would look to uh, countries like Canada, the U uh, the U.S., U.K., our European and NATO allies. 
uh, to come together and come up with a solution before the UN could ever come up with anything. Scary situation for sure. Kind of changing tax a little bit. Uh, you know, also scary is the food supply. And I was really unaware before this war just how important Ukraine was in terms of, you know, kind of the, the wheat and, and the sunflower seed and the other grains that come out of that country. Are we moving a little bit forward in terms of them allowing the Russians, allowing those ships to leave Ukraine loaded with wheat, sunflower seed, etc.? Well, that, and that's right, Sue. I mean, much of the developing world, a, a lot of African nations, uh, um, a lot of nations in the Middle East rely on uh, Ukrainian grain in order to uh, basically survive. Uh, you know, there's some countries like Egypt and, and Lebanon that uh, rely 25% of their entire uh, food supply is, is they will rely on on Ukraine for those those ever important grains. And so, uh, you know, there was a, a distinct threat, and there continues to be a threat that um, Russia's blockade of Ukraine's ports in, in the Black Sea. Uh, could yet uh, cause a food crisis, but uh, but uh, Ukraine and Russia um, were able to come to an agreement with Turkey just a couple of weeks ago uh, about allowing ships to pass from those Ukrainian ports loaded with that grain and pass through the uh, the Bosphorus Straits, which are controlled by Turkey. Um, there are inspections happening of these ships, and and so far around three to four of these ships have been allowed uh, to to carry grain. So. So there's hope that um, things will progress in that regard. But again, uh, we're dealing with Vladimir Putin. Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin does not respect his international treaties, none of the, the agreements that he signs. And so there's always that risk that he will renege on this and start firing on those ships or blockade the ports uh, all over again. And geez, might even bankrupt his own country. I see the, the dollars being spent on this war is at $9 trillion, and that's a conservative guess. Unbelievable. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Marcus. Really appreciate your uh, insight. Anytime. Thanks for, having me on. Thanks for having me on, too. Thank you. Marcus Kolga is the founder of disinfowatch.org, senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. You can go to disinfowatch.org for more details. Independent living, assisted living, and dementia care, they have it all at the new Trico Living Well Seniors Community in South Calgary. I was lucky enough to get a chance to check it out. I'm here with Grace Sue, who is the executive director of Trico Living Well, brand new seniors residence uh, down on McLeod Trail South. And Grace has just toured me through the building and I am absolutely floored by how beautiful everything is in here. Grace, tell us a little bit about the concept going in as you designed and got ready to build this facility. Mm-hmm. So our whole concept is to make sure that, you know, people at any age once they are retired that continue to be themselves and to be able to make their own choices and you know to live the best of their lives so we learn a lot from the pandemic sometimes things you know can get into the way so when we were actually thinking about the design of it we wanted to make sure this built environment is going to be built with a lot of resiliency and also flexibility that we can pivot through pandemic and outbreaks to support people to continuously live well and age well. So let's talk a little bit about that. For example, in each room, the filtration system and that sort of thing within the entire building, in fact, is intended to keep the air and the people healthy. 
Yeah. So we have used a combination of uh, ways of design to make sure the public areas as well as the residential areas are actually at the best quality at that time. So we use a combination of a HEPA filtered and 100% outdoor fresh air, uh, as well as the individual rooms that can actually change the temperature and uh, air conditioning as well as filtration so that we can in a way, uh, have the highest quality of air uh, while people actually feel like they're living in a very comfortable residential space. And that's the thing that's so beautiful. Uh, You know, you can see you've pointed out things to me that sort of, you know, bring the building up to the quality or or standard of, of a hospital, yet nothing in here feels like you're in a hospital. It does feel like a resort, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, it feels that luxury and, you know, comfort and, yeah. and, and the beauty of a resort. Yeah, so that's what we want. We want it to be a really comfortable home for the family and residents to enjoy. Uh, and they don't know about all the science behind it. That's, that's our goal. Let's talk a little bit about family. Like you said, there's lots of different spaces here, not just for the residents, but for families of the folks who will be living here. And it's so comfortable. There's so much light, windows everywhere, big, beautiful glass windows. I mean, it really is spectacular. The the dining area is fantastic. You've really thought of everything. We do try. (laughs) So we think about what kind of lifestyle people would want. And we want to provide those lifestyles at the fingertips, at their own time, at the choice. So we never cookie cut anything for people that they don't have a choice about. So it's about um, enjoying, if they want to cook, they can cook for themselves. If they want to enjoy wonderful meals prepared by our culinary team, they can, Uh, as well as all the programming so we we allow them to choose whenever they want whenever they want to join or whenever they want to have a consistent pattern they can do you i mean there's an art studio you have your own executive chef on board here who's in the facility each and every day cooking i mean really there's so many amazing amenities here and you know folks from the age of 60 on there's everything that they need Absolutely. And we want the family to come with them. So, you know, we welcome the family and the friends to come and visit and be part of this community. And that's the whole uh, idea of living because you're not living on your on your own. You want to, you know, be, be enjoying your life with the relationships that you really care about. And we honor that. Physical activity, entertainment. You know, I love that you've got a wine and a beer bar for them to come down and have a, a drink at night if they so desire. I mean, it, it really is, you, you know, you've thought of everything. And I think that's the beautiful thing. I think through the pandemic, we've learned, you know, sometimes some of these senior centers, we've just left our old people in there to be on their own. And, and it's time to change that, isn't it? Absolutely. And we see that, uh, you know, they are mature intelligent adults and they can choose wherever they want to enjoy their life and this is a place that we want to honor that individuality and lifestyle that want they want to choose to have so that's why you when you come to trackle living well you find that wow okay am i in a senior living or not because this is just a very enriching uh living environment 
that can support and anyone who who who, who wants to come here to mm-hmm. be honest and you know sue you were saying that oh i can see myself living yeah. here and uh, we that's the question we ask ourselves every day our staff can we live here we all said that we would love to live here <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and you know for for all stages of life too right mm-hmm. whatever your your physical mental well-being might be at there's a space for you here. How do people find out if they're interested in maybe themselves or a family member coming to live at Trico Living Well? Well, first of all, check out our website, tricolivingwell.com. You can call us as well at uh, 403-281-2802 to arrange your tour. I have a couple more years left and then I'm moving in. Thank you, Grace. Thank you so much. 